Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. With me today is CEO and CIO Chris Wallace. Welcome, Chris. It's good to be here, Dan. All right, Chris, good to have you back. Uh, last week was jammed up with our quarter-end uh, strategy podcast, so we'll hop back on more to, to our macro conversations today. Um, and one topic I want to jump right in with is, is uh, what we're seeing with the equity markets. So we continue to see um, quite a bit of volatility in equity markets. The, the swings day-to-day, you know, they've really become quite extreme. Um, mostly, unfortunately, continued in, in a bit of a modest downtrend. Stepping back from the U.S., we've seen the global equity market weakness that appears broad across all risk assets, credit, currency. Um, really, the only bull market that we've, we've been able to identify on a sustained basis is the U.S. dollar um, and persistently higher interest rates across the U.S. Treasury curve. Uh, so, you know, while we've seen sentiment indicators, they've remained bearish. Um, investors still appear to be positioned for either a fourth quarter relief rally or perhaps a, a Fed pivot-induced rally. Um, so question for you is, you know, can you discuss the current equity market uh, near-term setup and then the potential for either a rally or a further sell-off? Yeah, you bet. I, the near-term, so I think it's going to be a coin flip as to whether we get um, a rally in the first, fourth quarter and whether it's relief-driven or otherwise. And the reason I say that is these moves in the market are very much liquidity-driven. So when we've seen the the high beta rallies, and it's tied into in and around uh, hedge fund degrossing or hedge fund redemptions, would it, which in that scenario, they sell their longs, but then cover their shorts. And so you see these cyclicals, you see the high short interest, you see beta move, and that creates a short-term chase within the marketplace as well. Um, but when you talk about what could drive a further sell-off, A, we have underlying fundamentals that are still deteriorating over the near term, but there's still in front of us a fairly large redemption window. So there's every reason to believe we're going to start to see um, more redemptions out of funds, and we haven't really seen the tax loss selling yet. So that's also still in front of us. And you're, you're very correct to point out that it's painfully obvious that what is underway globally is a continued liquidity squeeze, a a grab for dollars. And so we see this really persistent move higher in the U.S. dollar. We see a really persistent move higher in U.S. interest rates. And I do think people somewhat falsely believe interest rates are moving higher because the Fed's going to, growth is strong, inflation is strong, and the Fed's going to have to increase rates. And that's really not what's going on at all. There's just no liquidity. And you got to remember, a, a U.S. dollar asset, whether it's a share of Microsoft or the 10-year U.S. Treasury, just serves as a piggy bank for dollars. It's just the place where people put their dollars. And in a world of declining economic activity and and rising yields and rising margin calls and the need to import food and goods at ever higher prices, you need more dollars. And the only way you can get those dollars is to sell those little piggy banks and get the dollars out of them. So that's really what we're witnessing right now, I think, across the globe, is a scramble for dollar liquidity, a clear shortage of collateral, and the natural incremental bidders we had for treasuries or equities are just gone, and they've become sellers. And the Fed isn't quite yet in the position to be that incremental buyer. 
And let me ask you about one specific asset class um, that, that's seemingly uh, at odds with itself. So over the recent weeks, you know, we've seen natural gas, right? That's tumbled you know, nearly 20%. Yeah. Um, can you just explain this to me? How is it possible in the midst of a global energy crisis, we've yeah. seen um, natural gas take a fall like that? Yeah. Natural gas and, and, and crude oil are a commodity like any other. And so they can be driven higher by speculative flows and, and driven lower uh, similarly. What we're actually seeing right now in natural gas is not unlike what we saw with crude oil during COVID. And what I mean by that is Europe has been in a scramble to buy as much LNG and natural gas as possible, and they've been able to fill up their storage or get to the point where bottlenecks are de de developing in those supply chains. And so it's really difficult to inject an incremental MCF of gas or store an incremental volume of LNG. And so it's almost like having uh, synthetic storage. So as the ships are stacking up along the European coast, they can't offload so that producers are now seeing a backup and they're, they're losing that incremental spot bid because we're in this shoulder season. Winter really hasn't started yet for Europe and weather's been fairly mild. When you look further out, so if you tried to buy um, uh, uh, LNG or natural gas on the spot market three months out or a year out, it still reflects very tight conditions. So it's nothing more than saying, hey, we've got an inventory problem short term. Let me knock the price down and try to balance it out. Let me see if I can, well, I can't sell this incremental MCF to, of gas to uh, Europe right now at $7, maybe I can sell it for five fifty to somebody in Asia or elsewhere. So we're just balancing the market with price. The, it's just the market doing what it, what it should be doing and balancing supply and demand. So um, next question for you today, uh, talking a little bit about earnings season. So, you know, here we are in the midst of earnings season, and it's still early. We've seen, you know, 20% or so of, of the S&P reported any, any clear identifiable trends and um, earnings consistent with pending recession in the U.S., you think? So it, I, there's a, there, let's put some context around the, we, around the earnings season. We've seen about 20% of the S&P report so far. And we always lower expectations coming into earnings season and the way companies are set up to, to beat um, we actually lowered earnings expectations quite significantly coming into the third quarter reporting season, more so than we ha probably have in the last 10 years. So that's something to note. Um, and even with what's reported, earnings are okay. So yeah, we may be beating, but as we get deeper into earnings season, I think we're going to see weaker and weaker results. And you know, is it consistent with a recession? Um, it's definitely consistent with the disinflationary conditions, which means you're, you're going to see pressure on the top line as it slows faster than the lagging elements of your costs that are still building. So we're going to see deterioration in margin, deterioration in outlooks, and that's evident. That's already evident. Um, the other thing, let's talk about this slow down in, in this cycle. Every cycle is different. And what's different about this cycle is we were having supply chain issues. So typically, 
the industrial side of the economy would slow first and that would spill over into services. Industrial, because we're working off inventories and it's still playing a little bit of catch up, that early cycle weakness really isn't as broad as it would typically be. As we move into the fourth quarter and certainly into the first quarter of next year, it's really going to show up in spades. So I I think you know, we're going to see that the economy's really started hitting a wall in September and October. And so that'll start to flow through more in the fourth quarter than, than it did so in the third quarter. The other piece of this is, and I do think there's real complacency by investors, is there's, I think there's an element of, well, okay, we've had a big move up in rates and housing data has weakened significantly, but it's not as scary as people thought. We really got to recognize that the data that's being reported reflects financial conditions three and six months ago. And we have just had an unbelievable move higher in interest rates in just the last eight to 10 weeks. So, you know, the 10 years gone from two and a half to over 4%, and the U.S. two years gone from 2.9% to 4.5% in very short order. And prior to these moves higher in interest rates, we were already set up for a big deceleration in economic or in earnings in the fourth quarter of 22, again in the first quarter of 23, a further slowdown, and the second quarter of 23. And when you factor in the lagged effect that tighter liquidity conditions and higher interest rates have, this big move we've seen higher recently, never mind what's happened outside of the U.S., won't even really begin to flow through economic activity for another 9 to 12 months. So um, unfortunately, look, we know the next two to three quarters is an economic slowdown and earnings deterioration. If we don't start to see leading indicators stabilize in turn, there's nothing that says it won't continue all the way through 23 and into 24. Um, last question today, and I'm going to try to square up maybe some of your two your answers and try to get a little bit deeper on these. So the first part is, um, you know, investors, you know, it's you know, according to what you're saying here, investors have accepted the weaker growth and earnings outlook, right? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, they're continuing to count on the Fed pivot, um, and that's the way that we can provide a bullish catalyst for equity markets and, and you know risk assets more broadly. So two part question then. Um, first, you know, are, are investors misguided in expecting a Fed pivot? And then follow up to that, um, you know, will a pivot in Fed policy have a similar effect as, as what we've experienced over the last you know ten or so years? Yeah. So I I think uh, it needs to be very nuanced because it's not. Investors are correct in expecting a Fed pivot. I think what we have to define is, well, what's a pivot and what does it mean? And what investors haven't done is acknowledged that we are in a different regime, that the Fed's policy tools and the results of those policy tools are very different in an inflationary environment versus a disinflationary or an inflation benign environment. And it is an absolute game changer when you have an inflation issue. And it is for two reasons. It means the Fed can't provide liquidity into the real economy without reaccelerating inflation. And it also means inflation becomes a political issue and, and politics 
and federal spending and fiscal spending has become an increasing component of our economy. And as long as we have an inflation issue, it will continue to do so. And unfortunately, politicians operate on short cycles, and they are going to make decisions that are good for getting reelected, not good for addressing the underlying inflation issue. So not unlike what we've seen in Europe during the energy crisis, where you have really high commodity prices and weak demand, they go out and they subsidize demand and curtail or penalize fossil fuel producers. Well, that reduces the supply of fossil fuels and increases the demand for fossil fuels that makes the situation worse. They don't care. It's good politics. It gets them through the next election cycle. So we're in a very different regime. I think the Fed has an impossible task in front of them. When we look at inflation, it will be sub 6% by the third quarter of next year. Okay, great. I can look at macroeconomic data and the markets are screaming that the Fed has more than tightened enough that inflation is coming down and they don't need to do anything. However, politics says that's not the case. Politics says the Fed can't go back and restart QE to stabilize Treasury prices because that's going to reignite inflation expectations, and that may make it even worse in the end. And the Fed is a political animal, and it puts their own credibility in jeopardy if they're not able to maintain conditions sufficiently tight to bring inflation down. I think the Fed is going to remain tight as long as the market is trading. And what I mean by trading, meaning there's no dislocations, that buyers and sellers can transact, and that there's not systemic risk. They're not going to care where asset prices fall. They're not out here to protect asset values. They can only protect asset values via boosting liquidity conditions when there is no inflation issue, and we squarely have an inflation issue. Um, I don't believe interest rates are moving higher because inflation expectations are moving higher. They're moving higher because they're crowding out. We don't have sufficient private sector uh, liquidity and capital to purchase treasuries and to purchase these assets. So we are breaking things. And we've seen it happen in the Bank of England. We've seen it happen in currency markets with the yen. Um, do I think the Fed will be able to continue down the QT path? and continue raising rates through the mid middle to end of 2023 without breaking something? No, absolutely not. I don't think they're going to have that. So I do think the Fed's going to pivot. However, as an investor, look, the market's knee-jerk reaction may be to uh, become bullish, but the pivot, unless inflation and core inflation is very low, the pivot is only going to be sufficient to keep the system together. It's not going to be a pivot and a boost of liquidity that gets the S&P to all-time highs. Um, that's going to have to happen in some other form or fashion. So, you know, part of it says, should the, should the Fed, should investors expect the Fed to pivot? Yes. Should they be happy they did? No. Because if they did, it means we broke something and they were forced to. So the investors just need to get ready for the new reality and while I think they've done a good job to date of discounting the higher prices and multiples, investors are going to increasingly focus as we move through 23 
of well, what does the what does the recovery look like? Where is the recovery in earnings and in growth a V-shaped recovery? Where is the recovery a U-shaped recovery? And where is it an L? And that's going to vary across different sectors and regions of the world. And a lot of it's going to be dictated by fiscal policy and, and political choices that we make. So stay tuned. A pivot's coming, but you don't want to see it. <laughs> pivot might come, but not for a great reason. <laughs> exactly. Okay, good. Um, well, lots in there today. So thank you so much. We'll wrap up and uh, we'll catch you on here soon. Sounds good. The views, information, and or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Von Nelson and its employees. Von Nelson does not verify and assumes no responsibility for the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast. The primary purpose of the information, opinions, and thoughts presented in this podcast is to educate and inform. This podcast, or any podcast in the series, does not constitute professional investment advice or services, and any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the entire contents of this podcast are the property of Von Nelson or used by Von Nelson with permission and are protected under U.S. copyright and trademark laws. Securities discussed within this podcast may be held in the Von Nelson Strategies.